This is an ABC podcast. Mr Morrison is at the centre of a political storm after it was revealed that as Prime Minister he appointed himself to five portfolios. People's minds are now turning to looking at the actions of the Governor-General and the role of the public service in this. The former bureaucrat who oversaw the Rudd government's disastrous home insulation scheme has faced heated questioning at an inquest into the deaths of three insulation installers. Government Services Minister Stuart Roberts says he doesn't accept people took their own lives as a result of an automated debt recovery scheme. The Commonwealth has agreed to an out-of-court settlement worth $1.2 billion over the so-called robo-debt program that wrongfully accused welfare recipients of ripping off the system. The role of the Australian Public Service is to give informed, independent advice to the Federal Government of the day and to administer its policies. But for decades, it's faced cutbacks, pay freezes and allegations that has been politicised. So is it able to give the frank and fearless advice that underpins its existence? Hello, this is Rear Vision and I'm Annabelle Quince. In this program, the story of the Australian Public Service, its history and its role in our democracy. According to the Australian Commonwealth Commission, there are around 150,000 employees in the Australian Public Service, dealing with everything from taxation, defence, the environment, education, science, infrastructure, communications and the arts, to name but a few. So what is it these public servants actually do? In order to govern, we need people to put into effect what the government chooses to do, and we need people who advise the government on what they should do, who have the expertise in subject areas and in management to give advice and put them into effect. And effectively, that's what the public service does. I'm Patrick Weller, who's a emeritus professor at Griffith University, where he's been working on issues of Australian and comparative government for the past 40 years. It used to be very large because the post office and the phone service were all part of government, now that they're not. But we now deal with issues of the economy, of education, of health, of trade, of international affairs, of transport. These are all things that are actually done by government officials who are members of the public service. So we need a public service that survives longer than any particular government, and we need a public service which can serve whoever is elected to the government. The Australian Public Service is constitutional by convention and a career public service, independent, expert, neutral, is a feature of Westminster-style systems like Australia's. So I'm Anne Tiernan. I'm a professor of politics at Griffith University in Brisbane. The APS, the Commonwealth Public Service, was established in 1901 to support and advise the federal government, and it's grown over the decades, and particularly in the post-war period, to be the primary source of policy advice and support to ministers and cabinet. And as the functions of the federal government have expanded, its role and remit in service delivery have also expanded beyond its role in policy advice. And of course, it's incredibly important around issues that were traditional Commonwealth responsibilities, defence, national security, trade, and so on. And it's you know, come much more into cooperation or sometimes competition and <laughs> conflict with states and territories over areas of shared responsibility, education, housing, lots of other domains, health. So its role has expanded over the decades as, as the remit of the federal government and 
state governments that have also grown, but it is constitutional by convention that a career public service is a feature of our system. When the federal government is formed in 1901, the very first public servant, Robert Garrod, was sworn in. And since then, it's gradually increased in numbers up to the 70s and then shrunk a bit as they handed off some of the responsibilities like the post office, like telephones, to corporations. They moved them out of the public service. It's still quite substantial. It's growing in expertise. There used to be a situation in which the public service was meant to be a career service, so you had to join at the bottom if you wanted to reach the top. The theory was that you joined as a telegraph boy to become a permanent head. So somebody said, be careful who you choose as telegraph boys. They're your future leaders of the public service. But there was that notion that it was a career service from top to bottom. Only in the last 40 years have we had a substantial number of graduates. It's now extremely well-educated at the top. So that early public service, say in the sort of first 20 years of the Federation of the Commonwealth, what did the public service actually look like? And if they weren't very well-educated, where where did they come from and what was their relationship with their ministers? Well, firstly, it was male. Before 1966, 65, 66, there was the marriage bar that any woman who was a member of the public service had to resign their permanent position if they got married. So it was male. It was sort of middle-aged male, preference to return servicemen. It was not highly educated. It was mostly routine. The first graduate was only employed in the 1930s. So for a long time up to that, it was really strictly a very narrow-minded, routine-based organisation. Since the increase in the role of government, it has become infinitely more skilled at a range of issues, including, of course, running the economy. The increase in the role of government and the push for a professional public service began after the Depression of the 1930s and really took off with the outbreak of World War II. I think there are a couple of intersecting factors. The first is the major impact of the 1930s Great Depression and the lingering impact of the 1930s Great Depression in terms of really highlighting the fact that economic management needed to be much more comprehensive, much more framed around the idea of what kind of nation should Australia be rather than various kind of rival state interests. I'm Nicholas Brown. I'm a professor in history at the Australian National University. The idea that it is the role of a national government to actively intervene in the management and the stabilisation of a national economy, the management of the society, nation-building projects can't just be left to the states. They need to be handled by national bodies. So there's that kind of huge paradigm shift, I think, in terms of what are the responsibilities of government. Secondly, I mean, there's just the basic demands of, of total war during the Second World War itself. I mean, Australia is drawn in to the Second World War in terms of the mass mobilisation of a population, not just to fight overseas, as it had done in the First World War, but to support allied, particularly American war efforts in the whole of the South Pacific region. In 1942, the Commonwealth Government gets the power to impose income taxation across the national population, to take that power away from the states. That gives the Commonwealth Government 
a huge and assured purchase on the resources that it kind of needed to follow its purposes. And that saw a much more comprehensive attention given to issues such as manufacturing development, the introduction of rationing or the management of rationing systems, the directions of labour. The Australian economy, the Australian society in the Second World War was tightly controlled to make sure that all resources that could usefully be directed to a total war effort were directed what you see as a commitment to nation building. And it's that kind of transformation, those elements, I think, that are so crucial to raising the status, but also raising the expertise and the power of the Commonwealth Government. The key role for that was the Department of Post-War Reconstruction, which was set up in about 1943. And the head of the post-war reconstruction was a public servant called Nugget Coombs. And he started planning the degrees of involvement of the government in a whole range of industry and other areas, which they had got involved in because they had to during wartime. So you come out with a Keynesian version of the economy, the fact that government has a role to play in the economy, whereas previously in the 1930s, it was very much an accountant's view of how they did it. You know, are we making ends meet? How do we cut rather than expanding the economy? So the economic ideas change, and with it, the way that government approaches its role changes, and that's coupled with a group of people called the Seven Dwarfs, because a couple of them were quite short, who advised chiefly, and they included people like Richard Randall, John Crawford, Nugget Coombs, Roland Wilson, who was Secretary of the Treasury for 15 years, was the first ever graduate. These were people who had the skills and the experience that they could say to ministers, well, minister, this is the way we would suggest you do it. But you have to remember from 1949 to 1972, there was no change of government. And not only were senior public servants the only advisors for ministers, but the federal government was the only organization in the country which had things like models of the economy. So there were no rival centers of power. So you had a series of very senior public servants who were very influential, not only because of their quality, but also they were dealing with ministers who perhaps didn't have that same sort of experience and spent their lifetime as ministers relying on the public service. But if you've got a minister like John McEwen, if you've got a minister like Malcolm Fraser, they wouldn't necessarily accept the advice that they were given. Not all ministers were subservient. A lot of them could be quite independent. In 1972, after almost 23 years of Liberal coalition government, Gough Whitlam's Labour Party came to power with a very different political agenda. On this great day, I, Prime Minister of Australia, speak to you on behalf of the Australian people, all those who honour and love this great land we live in. The great change occurs in 1972, when for the first time since in 20 odd years, a different government gets sworn in with a degree of suspicion about whether these powerful public servants have become too powerful and the ministers have become too subservient, basically doing pretty well what they were told. The expression was captive ministers, you sign the bits of paper. Do you think Whitlam's suspicion of the public service was justified? I think he was wrong in the sense that the public servant was all desperately scared of an incoming Labour government. He was certainly is in a hurry. There's a memo he wrote after about 20 days about the list of things to be done, and there were about 15 different things that had to be done quickly. Most of them were done very quickly in those circumstances. And I think a lot of public servants welcomed that change. 
What he then did was to shift those permanent heads he really thought would not be supportive. So three of them were sent to jobs in Geneva on the grounds you couldn't actually sack them, but you could give them an alternative position. So they reorganised the public service, probably underestimated part of it and found other parts of it extremely difficult. They found the Public Service Board, which was responsible for setting up departments, much slower, much less supportive than they would have hoped, and it took a long time in some cases. That was partly down to perhaps dislike of what they were doing, but it was also partly due to the fact the Labour government didn't understand how traditionally things had been done and were in rather more of a hurry than a public service who had served the same government for 23 years was used to. It's not necessarily a change in personnel. We don't trust you. You've been there for too long. But it is, in a sense, I think, a change in structures. If we're going to move this new range of policies forward, then we're going to need to create new structures. And inevitably, with those structures will come new forms of expertise, new forms of authority that are inevitably going to confront the older ranks of the public service. What they also bring in is the notion of personal ministerial staff, ministerial advisers, not from departments, but in ministers' office, whose role is, in a sense, on paper, to navigate the transition between the agenda that the government comes in with and the capacity of existing departments to respond to that agenda. Those advisers are seen by the older ranks of the public service to have unacceptable power to break through the conventions of permanent heads talking directly to ministers. But there's also a sense that an agenda, a policy development agenda, which up until that point had been largely the business of departments, departments advised ministers on what policy options might look like. What starts to happen, I think, more clearly with the Whitlam government is the ministers and their personal staffs are starting to say, this is the policy that we want, how are you going to implement it? But there are some real tensions of reform that are thrown up in that period that are, in their longer-term consequences, I think quite seismic in the changes that they perpetuate. Whitlam's critique was that was all too slow, that they were a bit resistant, and we know that Whitlam arrived with a huge reform agenda, you know, at a time when the economy was changing and the international risks were being flagged. Every government after Whitlam, including Malcolm Fraser, had some strong views about how responsive the public service was and the changes that we saw canvassed in two big, initially the Royal Commission into Australian Government Administration that was commissioned by the, and chaired by Nugget Coombs actually, was commissioned by the Whitlam government, but it delivered its report after it was dismissed. Dr Coombs said the public service was suffering from what he called cultural bias. Whilst praising the enthusiasm of the younger members of the service, the older officials showed the scars of time. There is, I believe, something seriously wrong with a system which so stultifies worthwhile human beings. Malcolm Fraser initiated another one called the Reed Review. The Reed Review was really about how do we make government more businesslike, how do we make it more efficient and responsive. Hawke came to power in 1983. Labor had a, a very significant policy of public sector reform that it wanted to introduce that Gareth Evans had done a lot of work on called Labor and the Quality of Government. And that set the scene for a whole variety of themes that had been touched on but not implemented under Whitlam. 
the public service has in many ways reflected the easygoing, she'll be right management and work style of the lucky Australia of the 60s and 70s. We can afford this no longer. One of which was making departmental secretaries who were appointed and could only be gotten rid of if the department was abolished, was to move departmental secretaries onto contracts. We also saw reforms to regularise the role that ministerial advisers, political advisers, personally selected by ministers who'd been a feature of the Whitlam and Fraser governments, but certainly the, the Hawke government systematised and introduced the legislation, the Members of Parliament Staff Act, to, to give ministers access to alternative sources of advice to the public service. So it really broke the monopoly in many ways, but that doesn't suggest that the relationship with Hawke government and Keating ministers with the public service wasn't good. In fact, they became quite important partners in the reform agenda, the sort of the golden age of economic reform um, that has set Australia up for 28 years of prosperity unbroken that followed. So, yes, certainly ministers were seeking to reset the balance, but the partnership of those years, particularly around the central agency bureaucrats in Prime Minister and Cabinet and, and Treasury, were incredibly important as a reform partnership that delivered many benefits. Then, in 1996, the Keating Labor government was replaced by the Liberal Coalition, led by John Howard. A purge of senior public servants in the first weeks of the Howard government has underlined a trend begun by Labor. In the Canberra of the 90s, governments appoint the people they want to do their bureaucratic bidding, offering them five-year contracts and the threat of termination. But John Howard's determination to reform the public service doesn't end there. All departments have been told to find substantial savings, and now ministers have been put on notice to supply a list of cuts by the end of next week. When Howard came in, he sacked six of the departmental secretaries. It's about a third of them. Some of them, you could sort of see a logic, but not a decent logic, that they had previously worked in the Prime Minister's office under Hawke or Keating. Others were just strange. They were long-term public servants. There seemed to be no particularly good reason for getting rid of them. So that created a suspicion between the public service and Howard. The Howard government also expanded the system of employment by contract. The contract model got imposed right across the board. Secretaries were contracted to ministers. Senior public servants were contracted to secretaries. Everybody else was contracted to their ministers. Where possible, they were put on AWAs. Agencies were on contract to other agencies to deliver services. Inside an agency, human relations was put on a contract to deliver services. Legal services were contracted. And in the end, of course, the actual delivery of public services, say the welfare system, were all contracted out as well. My name's Kathy McDermott. You can use Dr. McDermott if that helps. And I am a retired public servant. And what is the book that you actually wrote? Whatever Happened to Frank and Fearless. It's got a subtitle, which is The Impact of New Public Management on the Australian Public Service. In tax, people were told in order to be efficient, they would be given performance indicators. Everything's based on performance indicator. And the people answering the information line had to respond to their clients in three minutes and move on and respond to the next client. So what happened was if you rang tax with a difficult question, after three minutes you were passed on to somebody else. 
And after three minutes with them, you were passed on to somebody else and so on. And in the end, you abandoned ship. Now, when you take that kind of model and not to the actual quality, the underpinning service, and apply that to the entire welfare system, but the services are contracted out. Public servants do not deliver services. They manage contracts and they check performance indicators. Then people who are on the receiving end of those services are treated as clients or customers. And the whole contract of trust between government and people who receive services is undermined. The other problem was, of course, that when those services were contracted out, the people who delivered them as part of their contracts were not permitted to raise concerns about the impact of those policies on people. So the feedback loop to government got closed off yet again, and that just reinforced the treatment of people as outcomes and their lives as indicators. It's not good for the long-term relationships of governments and the public. I mean, I'm wondering whether or not the whole incident of the robo-debt fitted into that category. Perfectly. It's, an, it's, a, it's a terrific example. These are people's lives, and the whole mechanisation of the system undercuts how they experience government and how they, they live their lives. So robo-debt, yes, absolutely. That's just a model of how it all comes out, I think. The argument is it saves money because you bring people in to come up with policy solutions without having to have them permanently on the books. And if you don't like them, you can go and get another group. Most of these consultants are actually staffed by ex-public servants who leave the public service, join consultancy firms, and then are hired, in a sense, back in to come up with policy solutions for government. The argument is that the result is that the public service no longer has the same policy capacity that it used to have, that it no longer has the ability to sit down and work its way through a problem and come up with some sort of solution. I think there's some truth in that. I think that if you aren't needed then you won't actually develop the skills. And if you go to Canberra, there are a whole group of people who were public servants, as you'll find now working in a whole set of consultancy firms who do one contract after another with government. They are as much on the government payroll, but it's a different sort of payroll. And it allows the government to jigger with the books to say how much we're actually employing. Is it better policy? I'm never sure, because... A public servant can actually say or should be able to say, well, Minister, this is one way to do it. If you want to do it differently, okay, but this is one way to do it. Consultants are always concerned about the next contract. And the problem with all of this is once you have all those contracts with the drivers to the employer as manager and as designer and as the person who sets the outcome indicators, you lose a sort of line of sight beyond the direct ministerial imperative. And the whole thing was driven by what the government called contestability, which basically meant that if you don't do what we want you to do, we'll replace you by the private sector, we'll replace your advice by our lobby groups, and we will replace your service delivery by uh, not-for-profits and for-profits. So the public servants were, I suppose, driven to look directly to outcomes and performance indicators. They were rated, and as a consequence or forced to lose sight of, a lot of the kinds of questions of what policy would do to people that they would normally have asked. For example, just to give you an example, in terms of policy, you get something like work choices, where I myself, as a public servant, spoke to the minister's office and said, 
these kinds of non-union contracts for women employees are likely to result in poor outcomes for those employees. This was based on what had happened in New Zealand and what was anticipated because women tended to be on awards rather than contracts. The minister's office got back to my senior manager and to me simply telling me I was uncooperative. People learned from those kinds of comments that they were only required to give one kind of advice. And in the end, we got to a point where the most recent prime minister, Prime Minister Morrison, basically told the public service he didn't want policy from them. He only wanted policy from inside the government itself and from its own advisers. Well, this is the great debate, of course, Annabelle, and it raged through the Howard years about whether people started to tell the government only what it wanted to hear. Different ministers' capacity and willingness to hear advice is different. I mean, Arthur Sinodinus has argued, and Howard has also argued, I think pretty convincingly, that, you know, he always wanted to see the public service advice and he didn't want his office to block that or in any way filter that. Of course, there were questions raised about that in the kind of children overboard controversy, but that he certainly thought that public service advice was contestable. And advice is advice. Ministers decide, public servants advise, and that's always been the case. But the extent to which public servants might have felt they were competing for influence from that time, I think became very much more pronounced. I remember talking to a minister in the Howard government, long experienced about government, who said the last 30 years have been a battle between the elected representatives, that's us, the ministers he was talking about, and the permanent public servants. And in that battle, the elected ministers have won. They saw it very much as reasserting their authority over the public service, ensuring that what they wanted actually got done. It doesn't mean it was true all the time. There will always be an uneven relationship between a particular minister and a particular permanent secretary. But so has the general attitude to the relationship between the two changed in the last 35, 40 years. So I'm just wondering, have these changes or these gradual changes, do you think, undermined the public service's ability to do both long-term policy and to give fearless and frank advice? I think the answer has to be yes. Any assessment of the patterns of government relations between the public service and government over the past 20 years would show us that that is the case. What we increasingly saw through the 1990s was, in a sense, the outsourcing of so many functions that, again, for somebody of my father's generation would have seen absolutely core continuing functions of a Commonwealth public service. Policy analysis, implementation assessment, regulation and so on. When these get outsourced, not only in a sense do you lose accountability for them, you often are told that you're going to save money by doing that. As I understand it, there's actually very little robust data that supports the fact that much money was ever saved by outsourcing these kinds of functions. I think programs such as robo-debt, the increasing reliance on highly systematised practices of managing departmental functions rather than allowing those functions to emerge through those active partnerships across departments with ministers over a long period of time. All of this, I think, is an example of a diminishing of that kind of capacity for frank and fearless advice, which we were told was fundamental to the Commonwealth Public Service of earlier generations. What happens is the winners win more and the losers lose more. And you get an increasingly divided society without that kind of impartial advice, you get something like what you're seeing in the United States today. 
I think it's absolutely critical to have a balanced and values-based public service. But it means governments coming to terms with what the word the public interest means. They have to be conscious that the public interest doesn't just mean what they want, and they have to be willing to hear about losers from the policies and about the long-term implications of their policies. Kathy McDermott, author of What Happened to Frank and Fearless. My other guests, Nicholas Brown, Professor of History at the Australian National University, Anne Tiernan, Professor of Politics at Griffith University, and Emeritus Professor Patrick Weller from the Centre of Governance and Public Policy, also at Griffith University. The sound engineer is Russell Stapleton. I'm Annabel Quince, and this is Rear Vision. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.